0: So, I was watching a sporting event one time, I think it was the Super Bowl, um, and a commercial came up at one of the breaks. You know, they say, well, there's a timeout, or we'll be back after this brief break. And here's a commercial that I saw on television. So I mean, first of all, I, I was waiting to see what the product was going to be. But you know what's more interesting is that there was no description. Nobody was introduced. They didn't have to give a subtitle of, of Israelites, Philistines. I, wait, I, I'm assuming you know what that story was. OK. I, I didn't want to assume too much, but I figured that I was safe on that one. How well-known is that story? that they, have, they don't have to say anything, give no description, and you knew who the players were, you knew how it was going to end, the only thing you were waiting for is, what's the product? So I don't know if any of you want to go out and buy a Wilson basketball or tennis ball or anything now after seeing that, but it, it was interesting. But again, how well known is the story of David and Goliath, that you can use it as, for marketing, that we've certainly learned about it in Sunday school from the earliest ages. And if you were to take a poll of maybe the top five or ten most popular or most well-known Bible stories, I'm sure David and Goliath would be in there, at least in the top ten, probably the top five, maybe even higher than that. We know the story very, very well. In the secular view, little guy beats big guy. We, we have that David and Goliath metaphor all over the place. Whenever a small college team is playing a big-time university, the announcers will call it a David and Goliath battle. Or you have some individual or small group taking on a big corporation in a lawsuit. They call it a David and Goliath situation. The idea of some small, unknown, probably not very well-equipped party taking on a bigger, more well-equipped, and should-win party is something that we're all familiar with. And we are familiar with it because of the Bible story of David and Goliath. Now, some of us have not really thought about that story too much since the days of Sunday school. That's, it's like, ah, I know it. Little guy beats big guy, Christian version, with God's help. I get it. Been there, read that. It's for the, that's for the, the primary school kids. We're, we're looking for meat That's milk. We're looking for meat as adults. Well, I would suggest that there's a lot more to the story than meets the eye. There's more than the the, the surface level interpretation. You can do anything with God's help. That's fine. But we need to go a little bit beyond that. There's more to the story than just the popular outcome uh, that that the the commercial is using. By the way, uh, I, I do need to say this. The depiction of the Israelites and the, and the Philistines in that, in that commercial, that was accurate. Armored people with swords and spears and some very rustic people with picks and, and, and rakes and sticks and things like that. That part was accurate. But I think we know that the, the conclusion was a little different. It's not the right equipment that makes the difference. It's the right God. And we may have that down. But I'd like to look at this story and find what we can learn about, especially from David's attitudes in this story, that helps us in our Christian life. We're going to see two main groups of people in in this story. Either the people are going to be spectators, or they're going to be participants. Do you know the difference between a spectator and a participant? A spectator watches. Sometimes you pay big money to watch people participate. Or sometimes you just watch it on your television. Spectators watch. Participants do what? Participate. Yeah, so it's not rocket science on that one. I think we get the the idea. And in this Bible story, there are some people that are spectators. That's going to be Saul and the Israelites. And there are some people that are going to be, or at least one person is going to be a participant. And that's David. And in the Christian life, and in so many churches... We have people that are participants, but we also have a lot of people who are spectators. So at the end of this message, we'll see which one we are. And I guess that would be the title of the message, Are You a Spectator or Are You a Participant? So I'd like you to turn with me to first the book of First Samuel, chapter 17. As we're turning there, some of you may be saying, Well, I don't need to turn there. I already know the story. i Watch, I just watched the commercial, I know what's going on with it. Uh, but there's a, there's a challenge whenever we are reading something very familiar, and that challenge is to not say, I already know this, but to see what God can show us, uh, show us through a new reading, through a fresh reading. There was a, a commercial for Kellogg's cornflakes and the, the suggestion of the commercial was, taste them again for the very first time. I guess the idea is, if you, if you tasted Corn Flakes as a kid, Try, to tr- try them again. Maybe things have changed. Well, I don't know if you ever liked cornflakes or not the first time, or whether you tasted them again for the second time, but I would invite you to read this story of David and Goliath again for the first time. Don't just assume that, uh, that, that what you know in the past is going to be enough to, to skip over reading it now. So as you're turning there, let me pray. Lord, we are grateful for the words of scripture, for the stories that we know so well, for those that have, uh, those that have insinuated themselves into our culture, so, so much so that we do not even need names to know what the story is about and how it ends. And Lord, as your word has gone forth, it's gone forth imperfectly through the television, it's gone forth maybe uh, superficially in our churches but we pray that it would be uh, set deep in our hearts now and that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to what you would have us see out of this story. Give us a fresh vision for this old, old story that is so meaningful and has been so uh, helpful to your people through the centuries. We thank you for the truth of Scripture and pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. As we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I need to give a little bit of background as to how we got to where we are in this story. Even the very first words, now the Philistines gathered their armies together in battle. If you know anything at all about biblical history, even if you just heard something from being in church, you know the Philistines are the perennial bad guys. They're always the the fly in the ointment to Israel. They're always causing problems. It seems like there's always war between the Israelites and the Philistines. Well, how do we, how do we get to that problem? Why are the Philistines so difficult? Why are they a constant uh, a constant uh, problem to the Israelites? Well, one is because Israel possessed the land, but they never took care of the enemy. You can go all the way back and read in, the, in Joshua, read in the book of Judges, read in the books of history, how Israel... Failed to drive out this people. Failed to drive out that people. They never took care of the problem in the first place. So since they never dealt with the problem in the first place, the problem has come back to deal with them. In this case, in the form of a people called the Philistines. If they took care of their problem centuries prior to this, they would not be at war with the Philistines as we open up chapter 17. So they failed to do it then, and they failed to continue to do it during uh, much of their history. Another issue that we need to know about or understand by context is who the king of Israel is. If you look back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find that Israel wants a king. They talked to the leader at that time, Samuel, and said, We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. We want a king to go out and fight our battles for us. Samuel said, No, you don't. Israel said, Yes, we do. Samuel said, No, you don't. God is your king. And Israel said, no, we want a real man king. We want somebody we can see. We want somebody that we can point to and say, that's the one. And God said, okay, if you want a king, I have, a, I have one in mind for you. His name is Saul. And if you, were to, if you were to get a poster of somebody that you would want to run for office, Saul would be the one to put on that poster. It says, in the, it says that he's head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. He was handsome. He had every outward appearance of the person you would want as a king, and I bet he loved strutting his stuff in his kingly robes and in his armor, and everybody would look at him and go, Woo! He's our king. We have a good one. Well, what we're going to find in this story is, even though he's taller than anybody else, he really doesn't do what kings are supposed to do. And if, if Israel wanted him to fight their battles, they, they needed to get a return on their money on this one, because they need, this, this product is defective. So God was supposed to be their king, they were not content, they get Saul, let's see how that works for them. And even as we continue reading this book, and we we know what happens in the story, we know eventually what happens with David, he will be one of the kings. 1 Samuel is part of the Old Testament called the historical books. And when you read the historical books, you're going to find one king after another, after another, that's a great disappointment to God. Even David himself, he he has a pretty good run, and then after a while, he has some difficulties, and and the end of his life uh, certainly doesn't compare to the beginning of it. One story after another. If you read the historical books, you see the failure of human kings. It makes us long for the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who's going to show what God really had in mind when we want him as our leader, when we want him as our king. Every failure and injustice of human government is going to be corrected when Jesus returns. This story shows us how far people have fallen, but it makes us long for the king that will come and bring righteousness. So as, a, as we began, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesimim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in one line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. I don't, I don't know how good your ancient systems of measurement are, but that's really big. No matter what measurement you're using, most likely he was about nine and a half feet tall, maybe maybe even closer to ten feet. Yeah. If you look at the hook that's up here, Goliath would have, his head would have almost reached the bottom of that hook. Just to give an idea of what you would be facing in terms of height. But then what are his armaments? What does he carry with him? He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had bronze armor on his legs and javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's, weaver's beam. The spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. So you see brass and iron and shekels of this and hundreds of that. Basically, everything he was carrying, just his weaponry and his armor, was about 175, 180 pounds. I don't know how much the guy weighed it's probably pretty significant. Pretty tall. Lots of stuff. Is he the guy you want to face in battle? I don't know. So anyway, he's, he's coming out. His shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not
1: servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve
0: us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words, they immediately rushed out to meet the Philistine in the name of their God. Oh, nope wrong verse and when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine they were dismayed and greatly afraid here's the king they wanted to lead them into battle and when he hears Goliath big guy on the Philistines biggest guy on the Israelite side when he hears what, what does he do he runs and hides he's afraid wondering what in the world is going to happen how are we going to get out of this so let's look at Goliath for a moment. It's, uh, it's interesting when you look at what he says and what he is, that he really represents more than just a big person. Goliath represents the biggest and best of what this world has to offer. Really, objectively, who is a physical match for him? Even without his armor, even without his 20-pound spear, even without everything else, the guy is pretty formidable. I don't know, who's the biggest one in the service today? Who thinks they're the biggest, baddest, toughest guy here? I still think that you, when if Goliath came out and they issued this challenge, you're going to be kind of shrinking down a little bit. I'm really not that big, don't look at me. But his, he represents those that have great power, great wealth, great intellect, great ability. Those that do not need God, and in fact those would that would defy God. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel. When he's saying that, what he's really saying is, I defy the God of Israel. The first one to start this was Satan, and Goliath is following in his path. So this, is not, this story is not only about overcoming the Goliaths in our life. I know maybe if you've heard sermons on this, on this passage, and this chapter, you've heard maybe, oh, what's the Goliath in your life? Is it money? Is it a job? Is it this? Goliath stands for a lot more than the, the personal things that we're dealing with. Goliath stands for those forces and those people, those, those organizations that actively stand against God and defy Him. And try and remove him and try and embarrass the God that we serve. Whether it's Islam in Nigeria, whether it's some lobbies for anti Christian, certainly uh, very un Christian activities here in America, Goliath is their champion. He's not just a champion of the Philistines, he's a champion of everything that stands against God. He's a champion of everything that says, I don't need God. Look at me. Come up against me if you dare whether it's wealth or whether it's money or whether it's power or whether it's politics if you're really if you're trusting in your abilities Goliath is your champion and as he came and and said these words to the Israelites nobody came back and contrasted this so Saul and the Israelites instead of coming out to fight Goliath they're afraid and they're when it says they're dismayed, they're saying, What is going to happen? How is this going to end? What can we do to get over this problem? And they represent somebody also. They represent those people on the sidelines that are looking for somebody else to do God's work. Waiting for something to happen. They're neglecting their duty when there's a job to do. Saul and the Israelites are the spectators. They're the ones that are sitting, watching, watching, Seeing who is going to step forward. Who is going to be brave enough to take on this guy. Who is going to stand up to the things that Goliath stands for. Goliath in this story, he's a theologian. I even thought of doing a message one time on theology according to Goliath. And his theology is, God is small, power, strength, and ability is everything, I can do it on my own. Not only do I not need God, I dare God to stop me. So that's Goliath's theology. But Saul and the Israelites are also theologians. They also have something to say about God. And what they're saying is, our God is not capable of taking on this giant. Our God is not capable of taking care of this threat. Or, maybe their theology takes a different different tack. Maybe they're saying, well, let God deal with this problem. As long as somebody does it, let that happen. So they are definitely spectators, looking for something or someone that's going to remove this embarrassment from them. So now we come to verse 12. Now, David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, uh, who had eight. Now, David was the son of an Eph- a- Ephraimite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him was Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening, so here's David. Youngest of these kids. Youngest of these boys. The oldest, the eldest, were with Saul. And whenever Goliath came and issued his challenge, what were David's brothers doing? Where were they? Were they out on the field of battle? They were just like everybody else. They were spectators. They were wondering, who's going to take care of this? Not me. Not me will do it. And as as the older brothers they should have had the respect they should have had the the, the the ability to be leaders in the family and instead their youngest brother is going to show them up so Jesse says to, to David his son take them some food find out how it's going bring me back news see the best David can do David's, David's ministry was going to be messenger say hi to your brothers tell me how they're doing by the way take this along with them. So Jesse doesn't think David is going to do much. No one thinks David is going to be able to do much other than be a, uh, an old form of cell phone. Communicate with them. Tell them I love them. Tell me how they're doing. So then verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David arose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, Behold, the champion of the Philistine of, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And all the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So David heard the same things his brother heard. David's had less battle training than his brother's. He's probably less better equipped but he has the same circumstances presented to him as everybody else in the Israelite army saw and heard for 40 days. So David is confronted with the same situation, the same problem, the same circumstances. And what does David say? How does he respond? Look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What
1: shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God?
0: And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. And then in verses 28 through 30, David's older one of David's older brothers is angry with him for asking questions and inquiring about things. Well, why why is David's brother so angry? What why is he taking it out on David? Well, I think there's a little bit of embarrassment and shame. Here's David making these statements about why someone isn't isn't doing something about this problem and his brothers who should have been doing something about it were off to the side they were afraid so instead of doing something they're embarrassed and don't you notice that when, when you're embarrassed when you're ashamed when, you, when you're shown up by somebody you can either respond with humility or you can respond with pride and arrogance and that's what David's brothers are doing. Instead of saying, you're right, David. What's going to be, you know, who is this guy that he should defy the armies of God? Instead of being motivated or being humbled by David's response, they take it out on him and they get angry. And they're just showing their own inability to deal with the situation. So they choose the other tack. They choose, they choose pride and arrogance. And yell at David. And David says, What have I done? I'm just asking a question. When the words, verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's
1: heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine.
0: And Saul said to David, <laughs> Actually, It doesn't say that in this version. That's just <laughs> sanctified imagination. But you can imagine this, this little boy, here's all these warriors and these people that are tall and here's Saul looking down and here's David saying, don't worry, I'll go out and take care of him. And Saul is kind of like laughing. When he's not like hiding under his bed from the Philistines, he was laughing. And say, he said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Jesse was looking at David's outward appearance and Eliab was looking at David's outward appearance. And Saul's looking at David's outward appearance. And later we'll see Goliath is doing the same thing. And I think you know know this verse fairly well. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. No one is looking at David's heart. They're looking at his outside. So Saul said this to David, but David said to Saul, And David said, The
1: Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this
0: Philistine. And Saul said to David, in good spectator fashion, by the way, and Saul said to David, Go! And the Lord be with you. You can almost hear Saul saying, At least I don't have to do this. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Now if any of you, uh, if, if, you're, if you, you have little children who like to wear their parents' clothes, it's kind of cute maybe when, when your son puts on daddy's shoes and puts on daddy's jacket and, and the, the sleeves go beyond his hands and are walking around in these little baggy shorts. He puts daddy's hat on, and of course the hat doesn't fit, so it comes down somewhere around the nose. And he says, like, ah, that's really cute, isn't it? Those clothes don't fit. Well, it's one thing when your son is doing that with daddy's clothes. It's another when David is doing it with Saul's armor. Remember, Saul's the tallest guy; he's going to have the biggest armor. David's, you know, little guy; it's not going to fit him very well. So you can picture this armor fitting on really loosely and clanking around, and just doesn't fit right. Can't can't work with this. So David then uh, then David said to Saul,
1: "I cannot go with these." for I have not tested them.
0: So David put them off, and what did he take with him? He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistines. Now I know you've heard this story a lot, and when you picture the stones that David would take, I don't know what stones you're thinking of. When I, I went to Israel in, in 1995, and when I went there, we visited this place where the battle took place, the Valley of Elah and they, they allow the tourists to go and to take stones out from the brook where David probably would have crossed going from the camp of the Israelite to meet the Philistines and usually when people go they, they, they take these little, little stones maybe the size of a walnut so many people go there by the way there are so many tourists and so many visitors doing that that the Israeli government brings in truckloads of stones just to dump in that little creek that people are walking by they want to make sure every tourist gets one of these David stones I guess but when, when you go to pick up those stones, they're you know, really small, the size of a walnut, maybe even a little bit smaller. Maybe that's what we're picturing David in, in going into battle with. But really, the stones that they would use at that time were about the size of a tennis ball. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit smaller than that. But they were, they were pretty hefty. And you're probably not going to want to put more than five of those in a pouch when you're going anywhere. So, why did David take five? We've heard all different kinds of reasons, maybe. Some people, uh, in a a moment of, I don't know what they're thinking, uh, they say, oh, David should have had more faith and only brought one stone. If he had more faith, he could have just taken one. Well, there was Goliath, and there was Goliath's armor-bearer, and there were whoever else he had to deal with. So, it's not unreasonable that he would take five uh, at that point. So, he took what he could, he filled up his pouch, basically, with whatever he could fill in there, five rocks the size of tennis balls. Well, that's that's something significant. And he's going out to face the the ranks of the Philistines. No armor, nothing, and and I think we get the picture on how that's going. So let's continue in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance I get the idea he's, he's not a real manly looking man since he's not even a man yet maybe, you know, maybe he looked a little bit very unmasculine at that point point. and Goliath is thinking what in the world, who is this? and the Philistine said to David am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks? and the Philistine cursed David by his gods see there's part of Goliath's theology
1: and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into
0: our hand. Isn't it interesting when the head of the elders and one of the pastors of the church engages in trash talk like this. I think, I think maybe, maybe it's a little bit therapeutic, a little bit cathartic, where you can like just talk to each other. In this, anyway, I don't know. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just talking. Anyway, they're they're going and they're trading insults, and Goliath is still wondering why are they? I asked for a man, and they're sending me a boy. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That's typically where we leave off in Sunday school. That's not where the story ends. You can tell why. When we continue reading, you'll see why maybe this is not the, the, uh, uh, continued in those primary school classes. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew, out it, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shearim, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So we see how the the little trash-talking competition goes, and of course we know how it ends with David doing exactly what he said he was going to do, which is to kill the Philistine and separate his head from his body. And we see the result that it had on the rest of the people of Israel. Once David overcomes, then people, people like to jump on a bandwagon, don't they? You know, no one was willing to go out and fight the Philistines, but now everybody's willing to go out and fight the Philistines. And it turns in, the, the whole battle turns because of what this person did. So we know the story, and I want to, Highlight several of David's attitudes that he shows attitudes that if we embrace we will move from being spectators to being participants now, I, I, when, as I was going through this I counted 12 different points that I could make I'm limiting it to 7 and for those of you that are doing the math you're thinking, hmm, 7 points 10 minutes per point that's 70 minutes from now We're not, we won't do that, don't do the math that way I will, I will tell you this, I've been back from Nigeria less than a month, and in Nigeria I'm used to teaching for three hours and preaching for at least one hour. So uh, uh, you don't have to worry about that now, but I, I am getting my, I'm getting my land legs, as it were, in, in, in uh, American pulpits again. But just bear with me. Uh, hope I hope you brought a sack lunch with you. We'll get comfortable. Well, it, it won't be that long. I want to, to quickly go through this, at least these seven attitudes that David displays. See, David's a participant. Everybody else, they were the spectators. David's the one actually doing something. So if he's the one that's being the participant, let's see what brings him to that point. What makes him different from the other people cowering on the sidelines of Israel? I know David has faith in God. I know his heart is a heart toward God. But what about his attitudes? Something that we can also embrace. Something that we can also emulate. Well, first, David is very cause-oriented. You look in verse 26, and he says it again later on, Who is this person that defies God? He's not doing this for himself. He's not even doing this for his glory. Even though Saul promised all kinds of wealth, You'll be rich, you'll marry my daughter, Your father doesn't have to pay taxes, All these other things... You know, that might, not paying taxes, that might be a big motivator for some people to do a lot of things here some people give because then they don't have to pay taxes or, or whatever, another story anyway, it's not those things that are motivating David it's the cause of defending God's name, and for a young man that is really special I had a, a friend in the Air Force and he, he introduced me to a phrase of, of some of these young pilots, he says they're all speed, no vector you know, and, and I think that's kind of true of a lot of, of young people in life anxious to get somewhere, not really sure where they're going. David had a cause. He knew where he was going. He knew what was important. He knew what he stood for, and he knew what the need of the hour was. So David embraced the need and realized that something needed to be done, and somebody needed to do it. I think some of us are still looking for a cause. Some of us are still looking for what it is that matters in life. What it is that we really want to pour our passions and pour our life into. And for David, at that one moment, he realized that God needed, God needed somebody to stand up for him and to to defend from a a human point of view to defend his honor and to show what he can do in the life of somebody who trusts in him. So David was cause oriented. He saw something that needed to be done and and being motivated for God's glory was what was his cause. Second is that he sees possibilities, not problems. There are some people that are almost paralyzed when they realize the problems that are in front of them. And and there's so much much in front, they they can't really make a decision and they don't really want to go forward for fear of making the wrong decision. And and they, they really can't see how God can help them through a difficulty but David sees the possibilities that look this guy is a a problem he's not denying the problem he says he is a problem but I see how God can still overcome this it's interesting there's a, a, a phrase in Christianity that maybe you've heard maybe you've even used hopefully you won't use that after this morning but anyway the phrase is this God will never give you more than you can handle have you ever heard that? Have you ever said, don't raise your hand. Have you ever said that? Well, you know, there's a problem with it, and it's just that's not true. God always gives us more than we can handle. Goliath was more than anybody could handle. God gives us more than we can handle for a certain reason. If we can handle it, we don't need God. But God gives us more than we can handle so that we trust and rely on Him to get us through it. And that's what David saw. Well, that's, a, that's a popular uh, sermon. If you, if you download internet sermons or from other people, I, I know Van, Pastor Van does a great job. Maybe that's all you want for, for the week. But I, I listen to some other, other sermons, and that's a, that's a pretty popular idea going around in, in some of the pulpits. Is that God gives us more than we can handle. Intentionally. So that we rely on Him. And David sees that with God, problems become possibilities. Goliath was a big problem, more than anyone can handle, but not more than God can handle. God didn't send the Israelites a little three and a half foot tall midget guy saying, who wants to fight me? Anyone want to fight me? Everyone would go out then. Everyone wants the glory fighting, fighting people that are three feet tall. Nobody wants to step out to someone who's nine and a half feet. Third, well, first, he was, David was cause-oriented. Second is that he saw possibilities, not problems. Third is that David knows his limits. When Saul tried to put armor on him, David said, this doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It's not who I am. It's not, this isn't how I roll. This isn't going to work for me. I haven't tried these. So David knew not to try and be like somebody else. He wasn't trying to mimic somebody or try to be like mini-Saul with the armor. He said, this isn't, this isn't who I am. This isn't what I'm about. I don't need this armor. When David says it's untested, he's talking about more than just the fact that he hasn't worn it before. What he says is, this isn't what I'm used to. So David knows his limits, and he puts no trust in Saul's armor, which, again, by extension, he's not putting trust in anything that that, uh, man says will give you the victory. Next, he's personally involved. You read again in verses 45 to 47. David says, I will do this and I will do that, then I will do this. He doesn't say, somebody will do this. He says, I will. So David takes things personally, and he does things personally. He doesn't say, it's a very good idea that Goliath should die, let's hold a committee meeting and discuss nominees who are going to vote to do this. He says, I will. Since nobody else is stepping forward, I will do this. And even though he says, I will, I will, I will, later on he does say, God is the one that's going to give me the victory. Abraham Lincoln had a phrase, I saw it on a poster that's in my son's room, uh, do not say, if I can, say, I will. Notice a lot of people will say, I'll do this if I can, which is really a a convenient way of saying, if I don't want to do it, then I can opt out. But instead say, I will, and then do what it takes to get it done. Next, David is passionate for God's glory to be revealed in the world. You look at verse 46 and David says, I'm going to do all of this and all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. This is is a mission sermon right here. I don't know if you ever thought of, of looking at 1 Samuel 17 in terms of a mission sermon, but here it is. That when God's people trust in him to reveal his glory in difficult situations, the world knows who the real God is. And as someone who's living in a place that, that can use more missionaries, the gospel's been in Nigeria for a hundred years. Why hasn't Nigeria been completely evangelized? I think part of the reason is because God's people are not revealing His glory in the world to the extent that they should. They're not passionate about showing the world what can be done when people trust in the Lord to the extent that David did. So his passion extends beyond the immediate need of Goliath and getting rid of him It extends even beyond defeating the Philistines. David says, I want the world to know who my God is. And the first step is dealing with this big guy who's standing in front of me right now. Next, David thinks big. You go back to that little trash-talking episode between Goliath and David. Uh, professional sports players have nothing in trash talk when you look at what's going on here. So Goliath says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So Goliath is thinking about David. I'm going to step on you like a bug and then the vultures are going to come and pick your body. And David says, Oh yeah? I'm going I'm to three up you. I'm going to kill you. Cut your head off. Feed your, feed your flesh to the vultures and all the rest of the Philistines. So David thinks big. He has a bigger plan than just this, this guy in front of him. He says, not only are you going to fall, look behind you, all your buddies. Same thing's going to happen to them. So David is not concerned about, the, uh, about just the, the initial problem. But he says there needs to be a bigger thing going on to take care of not just today, but to take care of our problem for the future. And then lastly, David knows which side he's on. He's sure of who he stands for. Twice in this story, he calls Goliath that uncircumcised Philistine. Basically, those two words together are going to mean that Goliath is not part of God's people. David says, there's, there's the, the uncircumcised Philistine Gentiles. They have their gods. I know who I stand for. And how can these people that do not belong to God dictate terms to us? He knows that Goliath and everything that Goliath stands for is not for him. So again, just just listen to David's attitudes. What makes him a participant instead of a spectator? He's cause-oriented. He sees the possibilities and not just the problems. He knows his limits. He's personally involved. He's passionate for God's glory to be revealed in the world. He thinks big and he knows which side he's on. That's what God wants to to instill in us, a, uh, a desire to to be the kind of person that took David out to face Goliath on the field of battle on that day. Like I said, there's a lot more. I would encourage you to read through this and see what other characteristics, what other attitudes David exhibits that would help us move from just being on the sidelines saying somebody ought to do this to being the one that actually steps out and leads by example. So in conclusion, I want to give you some heart work uh, I like calling this heart work. As a, as a teacher, I give lots of homework. And I grade the homework and I give it back. Heart work is something between you and God. God does the grading. He's probably more strict than I am. so And it's up to you whether you do this or not. Uh, but I'll, I want to give heart work to two groups of people. One group, I want to give heart work to some spectators. And then I would like to give some heart work to some that are already participants. Some that are already giant slayers. First is the spectators. First, decide which side you're on. There's some people that still have not really decided that they want David and everything that David represents for their life. They may say, and if I were to ask you, whose side should you be on? I'm sure you would all say, whose side? God's side, David, and the God of David. People say that, you know the answer very well, but there are some people who would say, they want to be on the side of God, and on and on the side of David, who exhibited faith in God. But they're really living their life like they're on the side of the Philistines. Now, if you were to be, if you were to be honest, if I were to drop you down, you visit visit uh, uh, three thousand plus years ago. If I were to drop you down right in the center between the side of the Philistines and the side of the Israelites, and I said, pick a side that you want, pick the winning side. Whose side do you want to be on? You can either turn this way and go to the camp of the Phil- uh, Israelites. Turn this way and go to the camp of the Philistines. Which way are you going to go? Be honest. Which way are you going to go? I think you're going to go over here toward the Philistines. You look at the, the, the sticks and things that they're carrying over here and the swords and armor that they have over here. You look at Goliath. You look at everything. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Or you just take the, the smaller scale battle. You have David going like this. And you have Goliath. You have David with his little stick and his, his sling. And you have Goliath with his spear and his armor and his height and everything else. And if I said, you pick the winner, who are you going to, who are you going to pick? I mean, really. Again, be honest. And let's make it more interesting. What if you had to put your entire month's paycheck on one of those two? David or Goliath? Who, I, I know you don't bet. It's not you know, Christians don't do that. Anyway, I know you're not going to, but if you had to, play along with me. Who are you going to put your month's paycheck on? David or Goliath? Who says David? Raise your hand. You liars. You're not going to do that. You're only, you're only doing that because you know how the story ends. We like those you know, we like it when the announcer says this is a real David and Goliath battle between tiny, you know, Mason College and University of Oklahoma. And we like it when little little colleges win. That doesn't often happen, and we know that. If you gonna if you were gonna bet something substantial, you're going for Goliath and the big guy. We like it when the little guy wins, but people don't usually bet on the little guy unless they have inside information. Well, those people that even knowing what David's God did on his behalf. There's people that even knowing how the story ends, they still have not decided to stand on the side of David and what he stands for. They still trust in their own wealth, in their own insurance, in their own abilities, in their own strength, in their own connections. They still trust in those things. They're just, they're just doing what Goliath did in big scale on, in 1 Samuel 17. They say, God's a great idea, but I trust my own abilities. They say, yeah, you know, God's out there, but I don't need Him. So if you're, if you're on the, on the sidelines, really decide which sideline you're going to stand on at least. It's going to be Goliath and Satan and the world and everything it stands for, or David and God and Jesus And everything that he stands for. One looks like it's going to be the winner. But we know how the story ends. Remember, all the historical books makes us long for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who's going to overcome every obstacle in the end. That we will see, and we'll see Satan be uh, put in his place. Just like David put Goliath in his place. You have the privilege of inside information right now. And even though it looks like Christianity is on the run, and it looks like cultures are overrunning it, it looks like our own culture is making Christianity look like some kind of an ancient, antiquated religion, and even though it looks like Islam and other things in the world are are overcoming Christianity, we have inside information. And you can either use that inside information and be on the right side, or ignore it and hope it doesn't work out that way, bet on Goliath and everything he stands for, and I wouldn't know that I don't know that I would put your eternal soul on that it's one thing to put your monthly paycheck it's another when you think of eternity second heart second piece of heart work is sometimes people have decided that they belong to Christ and, and you come to church and you're faithful at church and you're, you've been here and you're, you're faithful at giving but you haven't really gotten behind a cause you're still a spectator it's interesting to read through all the different activities that are going on in church and, and the, the people that were kind of commissioned to go to New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. That place is a mission field. Uh, I, I'm from Runamie, New Jersey. Exit 3 on the Turnpike. So I know, I know Jersey. I'm from there. So it's great that they're going to that land of heathen uh, a little bit north. But you look at all the opportunities to participate. And what's sad is out of the hundreds of people that go here, some people go here and then they leave. They just come on Sundays and they leave. And you're still on the sidelines. Get off the sidelines and get into the game. Stop being spectators and start being a participant in some way. If you're looking for something to begin with, you look at the bulletin. I should have just counted. I was paying too much attention to the songs. I thought I should have underlined all the different ways you can participate just in what's on this one bulletin. Uh, I guess I can give you that as homework. That when you, you can decide if that's hard work or not. But if you're just on the sidelines, start participating. Seeing what God can do through your life. Now here's a danger to a, a message like this, is that those that are giant slayers are saying, yep, give it to them. They need to hear that. This is for those people that need to have more faith in God. They need, yeah, That's right, they need to be doing more. Well, here's some, here's some hard work for giant slayers. People that are already participants. Number one is... Don't rest on previous victories. Don't just say, I used to be active in the church so much and now I get a chance to let other people do it. There there really is no retirement in in Christian service. I heard one person say that to retire means to put more tread on and keep going. So whether you've done something in the past (laughs) and you're saying, yeah, I I really helped out three years ago at Pioneer Camp. uh, it's, It's not what you've done, but it's what you're doing. Next, or, or so. So, if you if you if you kind of like have, are looking at your previous experience and counting that for the future, look more immediate. Next is there's some people that are constantly they are always doing something. They're they're working in this area. They're working in that. They're doing work around the church. They're going out to the fair uh, when, when the, the Jefferson County Fair is out there. Doing all kinds of things. Take somebody with you exhort and challenge and, and bring people along with you just like David was able to change the whole attitude of the Israelite army through his act of, uh, of obedience so if you're doing something think about how you can bring someone along with you if you're cutting grass bring someone along with you if you're going out and doing anything for the cause of God if you're passionate about that cause oriented you're already participating see how you can bring somebody along guide others guide others into being a participant. Third, keep a memento, or keep some kind of souvenir. When you look at the end of the story, the part that doesn't often get read in children's Sunday school, after David killed Goliath, he did exactly what he said. He took off his head, and he took his armor. Now, the head, as a memento, the head has, let's call it, a relatively short shelf life for for keeping it around. So that was one, that not going to be a good long-term reminder of what David did. Plus, he, he ended up taking that to Jerusalem anyway, it says. By taking it to Jerusalem, I, I think what he's saying to those people there is, Hey, see this? I'm coming for you guys later. Keep this in mind. But then he took, he took Goliath's armor, and he put Goliath's armor in his tent. And don't think that every morning when David woke up, and he looked and he saw that armor, he didn't say... God really did something. I guess I can continue on. uh, During the prayer that that Alan was praying, you mentioned one of David's psalms. Lord, in you I put my trust. I don't put my trust in what? Armor. I don't put my trust in these things. Why can David say that? What gave David such a sense of trust all through his life? Probably because he was able to look at that armor and say, I know where I got that from. I know how it happened. And I know God can do that again carry something around your house or in your office or in your car or you know, wherever you spend a lot of time so that when you see it, it brings back a remembrance of something that God has done to, to bring glory to his name through an act of obedience of your own. So that when you say it, you get, so that it's a constant challenge to continue on, but it's a constant reminder of how God is able to help uh, in, in those times of possibilities, not just problems. And lastly, trust in God for more than we can handle. Don't sit in our comfort zone. I know that, that for those of us that, that are engaged in ministry, we have kind of a, well, in, in a good term we call it a niche. In a bad term we call it a rut. We're doing the same thing, doing the same thing. That We're, we're, we're always involved in the same kind of ministry. Maybe God wants us to step out into something that's a little uncomfortable for us so that we rely more on him, not our own abilities or our own, uh, our, our own past victories. So at the end, when we look at a story like this, I'm reminded of, of some Ab- other words of Abraham Lincoln. Yesterday our family went to Gettysburg to visit the reenactment, and before each of the reenactment battles, uh, they, they had somebody read Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and since I knew what I was speaking on, these words kind of stuck out. Part of his address, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. I think that's the reason First Samuel 17 and David's story last so long. We can't forget what was done. And I don't know that the story is finally written about what could be done if someone really cause-oriented and passionate for God's glory and, and someone who wants to see God at work in their life, if they can do something, the world will know that there is a God and maybe that will also be remembered too.